And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is The Travel Show in which we talk about vacations. Welcome I'm Arthur Fromer. And I'm Pauline Fromer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be discussing travel. And we would love to have you be part of that discussion, either coming on as an expert or coming on with a travel question. Our email address for that is FromerTravelShow at Yahoo.com. But even if you don't want to be on the show, we know we can give you great travel information throughout the week, not just on this show. We do so at Fromers.com. That's our website. It's also a heck of a lot of fun to follow us on social media. You can do that on Instagram, on Pinterest, on Facebook, on Twitter. Just look for the word Fromers, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S. And what we often tweet about are current articles on Fromers.com. And we've got a doozy up right now about what I think was one of the greatest shames in uh, current tourism. It was what happened to Yosemite. Do you know about this, Dad? We no, have it on the cover of Fromers. I'm, I'm anxious to learn. A couple of years ago, the company Delaware North, which had been the concessionaire for Yosemite, was fired by the state by the by the National Park Service. They felt that they weren't running the shops and the restaurants up to the standards that the National Park Service wanted, and so Delaware North did something despicable. They copyrighted the names of the classic uh, inns and campgrounds of Yosemite. So Yosemite, for since its opening, its grand hotel had been known as the Owani, and its campground has been had been known as Camp Curry. Delaware North copyrighted those names and said to the National Park Service, "We own those names now." And you can't use them anymore. Well, finally, that has changed. uh, And in a kind of lousy way. But uh, the new concessionaire, which is Aramark, decided that it would pay millions of dollars to, to Delaware North to get the right to use those classic names again. Uh, the American taxpayer will be p- paying Delaware North $3.84 million, and uh, Aramark will be paying the rest of $12 million in order to get those names back so that we can use the names again that were first input. What a holdup. What a despicable holdup. Isn't that you terrible? You have to pay for the right to, to use names right. that have been, become so so familiar and so associated with one of the great national parks of right. the United right. States. So we've got the names back. I'm angry the Delaware North held us hostage in this way. But that's that's happening. We have a very interesting article about it on uh, Fromers.com. And then in the news you can use category, it's no secret that the secret prices on Priceline and on uh, um, Hotwire are often the 
best in the business for hotels. But a lot of people don't want to plan a vacation and not know which specific hotel they're going to. Well, Jason Cochran, our editor-in-chief, has come up with ways to figure out what hotels you are going to get on both Priceline and Hotwire when you use those services. What a discovery. Yeah, it's very different methods. So for Priceline, if you use Chrome as your, uh, um, what is it called, as your server, there is a an app you can download, da- download and ex- install. It's a free extension to Chrome. It's called Hotel Canary. Now, Priceline will conceal the hotel name, but it gives a list of amenities and other details of the hotel. And Hotel Canary can look at those details and tell you what hotel it is. (laughs) I'm surprised that Priceline is allowing this. So it's a free extension. You just download it and now you can know what hotel you are getting when you do this bidding process on Priceline. On Hotwire, it's a little more um, work intensive for the for the uh, user. So basically, you go to Hotwire, and you're looking at a hotel. You've got a price on it, but you don't have the hotel name. Hotwire then says, "Click here to see three possible names of hotels that you it could be." What you do is you just click here three times <laughs> and you will see that one of those hotels comes up each time and it'll be different hotels in the other two slots, but it's always that hotel. And so by process of elimination, you know exactly what hotel it is. Does that make sense to you, Dad? It makes sense. But how soon will it become that that, that Priceline and Hotwire eliminate those uh, those secret uh, knowledge? Those, uh, well, I don't know. Disclosures, I, rather. I'm not sure. It's going to be interesting to see if uh, if that does uh you know lead them to to do that to plug the loophole to plug those loopholes but in, until they do you know do <laughs> do come to fromers.com to take a look at those uh at those ways of doing it we also have a lot of good information for families on fromers.com and i have an article up uh called exotic vacations with kids destinations that you might not have thought of that you can easily take your families to. And I just added to it. It's been up for a while. It's one of our most popular articles on Fromers.com. And I talk about how when we went to Japan, when my kids were very, very small, having a baby with us was not something that closed doors. In fact, it opened doors because people were so enchanted by our blonde-haired little girl <laughs> that <laughs> people were talking to us. People were giving us little treats in the uh, in the market. We were often surrounded by flocks of schoolgirls squealing kawaii, kawaii, which means cute, cute. Uh, so we met all kinds of people because we took our baby to Japan, which is something most people would think was a crazy thing to do, but it actually turned out to be one of the best things ever. Uh, We also took our children to Poland. 
which was a fascinating place to visit, a, a country filled with um, castles and, and beautifully preserved ancient cities when you go to Krakow. But for us, it was a place to trace our heritage. And, Dad, you joined me in Wamsha. We, we went first to Bialystok, and from that we, we rented a car, and we drove to the little town of Lumza, mm-hmm. which is where our grandparents yeah. uh, lived uh, before they both died. Yeah, and we found there a grave at the cemetery. And so we were able to introduce my daughter to her history in that way. I, I just added Columbia to the list of great places to take your kids to because there are all of these fascinating adventures you can have. You go to Cartagena, which looks like it should be a fake city. It looks like something Disney World would have created because you have these beautifully preserved colonial uh, buildings that are are painted in every color of the rainbow. So it's this beautifully beautiful city. You learn about their, their slave trading past and some of the more negative aspects of their past. And then you leave and you have these crazy experiences in nature. Like my daughter got to swim in what was called the Pink Sea, which is this inland sea where these little microorganisms go to die and they turn the water a bright pink. And we posted pictures of her swimming in this pink sea. Everybody thought we had put a wacky filter on our photos, but no, that's what it actually looks like. It's actually, these are the microorganisms that flamingos eat that turn them pink. And we also uh, bathed in what is called a mud volcano. We climbed to the top of this hill and then there was this warm mud. We couldn't feel the bottom of it because, but it was so salty that we were able to float on it. So we had all of these amazing adventures uh, that the kids loved. Also recommended in this uh, where to take your kids uh, that's exotic but fun, Belize. Belize is an extraordinary family destination because not only do you have great snorkeling and great water adventures, but you go into the jungle and you climb ancient Mayan pyramids and see the structures that these incredible engineers built centuries ago. Uh, We also went into a cave where we swam from room to room until we came to this massive part of the cave. It looked like a cathedral where we had to take off our shoes and socks because, well, actually we could keep on our socks, but because calcified to the floor were ancient pots that should have been in museums and bones from human sacrifices that we tiptoed around uh, and saw history right in front of our eyes. And it's something that my kids will always remember uh, and I think makes studying history when they get back to school that much more visceral, that much more real to them because they saw places that were so different from the rest of the United States. So come to Fromers.com, take a look at those articles. I think you'll enjoy them. And we always put up new things every single day, basically, uh, to explore the wonderful world of travel. We have to take a break. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
back to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer here with my dad, Arthur Fromer. And on the line, we have Lauren Sloss. She is a uh, contributing freelancer to The New York Times who wrote a very, very helpful article called Traveling with a Group, Here's How to Plan and Stay Friends. Welcome to The Travel Show, Lauren. Thanks so much, Pauline. Happy to be here. So that the the headline really gives us the key item: how to stay friends. You talk at the top of the article that you have to look at what the group dynamic is before you plan the vacation and make sure that your group is actually going to work as a set of travelers vacationing together. Absolutely. That was that was a tip that was given to me in one of the first interviews that I did from the story from Kate Doty over at uh, Adventure, kind of the high-end adventure travel planning network. And Geographic really Expeditions, it was called? Yes, yeah. it was. Um, and that really resonated with me. I'm, I'm someone who has both planned and participated in a lot of group trips from groups of friends, uh, big trips with lots of family members of different ages. And if you don't think through those dynamics early, it can be kind of a mess. Some right. people really have clear ideas of exactly what they want to do. They want a tightly scheduled itinerary, and others are the opposite. And to try and combine the two approaches, things can get kind of messy, especially, again, if you don't establish those guidelines and boundaries beforehand. And it's not just the itineraries. Groups really should figure out what type of accommodation uh, they would want, right? That that can really be part of the group dynamic. Absolutely. Do you, do you all want to be in a big house together where you have a kitchen and you can cook, but you are more responsible for upkeep and making beds in the morning, for example? Or would you rather be in a hotel where there are services to take care of things for you? Right. And you also recommend some shared apps. I thought this was really smart. Talk about Doodle. What does that do and why is it good for travelers? Doodle is a lifesaver. And again, one that I have personally used quite a lot on planning on any number of trips. Doodle is dead simple. It allows you to put dates or even date ranges that you are available for a trip. Um, when trying to kind of schedules we're all pretty busy instead of just having an awful email chain that grows to gargantuan lengths and sizes this just allows you to vote kind of poll form on dates that are most convenient for you and at the end it's really clear what will work for the most number of people so you you can put polls in so not only for what dates are going to work maybe what places you're going to visit if you're going to more than one or or other items google sheets you say is also another way to do this right right and google sheets um i feel that most of us have some experience with shared google docs um this is just a spreadsheet app that allows multiple people to contribute to it and a kind of clear, easily accessible way to organize information, everything from when various people's flights are arriving, if people are coming from different places, or allow you to track expenses. Although further on the article, we talk about some other apps that have been more tailored to track and divide your expenses. Right. So well. let's let's talk about those apps. They're called Splitter, which is spelled S P L I T T R and Splitwise. And these are yes. free apps. How do they help with expenses? So initially, they're just an easy one-stop shop place 
to track all your expenses. If you did a grocery run for a shared house or you bought tickets for some kind of excursion on your trip, you can just enter the amount that you spent directly into the app. The thing that I think is really useful about these apps and makes it more streamlined and easier to use than a simple spreadsheet is they allow you to divide expenses by shares or percentages. So if you're a family of three traveling with a family of five and you all participate in the same thing, you can divide your expense by the number of people who participated. And it just makes it a little bit easier versus trying to complicated math, particularly when you're on vacation, which no one wants to do. Right. Nobody wants to do math on vacation. We're speaking with <laughs> Lauren Sloss, who has a terrific article on the Times in the New York Times called Traveling with a Group. Here's how to plan and stay friends. So you're going to be splitting the expenses evenly. You're going to have these spreadsheets so that everybody knows what's happening. But one of the things that you want to do is amortize the fact that you're a group. Um, what are some methods for doing that, getting a, the best deal possible by saying to travel providers, I'm going to give you a bunch of people? Yeah, you know, there's not necessarily a hard and fast way to ensure that you're get a deal when traveling as a group, but doing a bit of preliminary research can be really helpful. And that's especially the case if you are looking to travel together, looking to fly together. There are some options in some airlines that allow you to pool miles or to uh, book together for a larger number. Um, You can get flexible tickets. You might be able to get a discounted fare. And um, in the article, I list some resources that you can use to get just have ideas of where to look. The points guy is a really, really good place to start. But if you, if, if kind of achieving peak, peak deal, what word am I looking for? If you're looking to get the best deals possible in traveling as a group, sometimes the best way to do that is to work with a professional. And I was pretty interested to see that more and more people are turning to travel agents, sure. again, which is not something that has been on my radar until somewhat recently. We have the internet, we have some access to so much information, but in ways, in some ways, having all of that information makes it even harder, uh-huh. a lot to sort through. Well, you talk so, in the you talk in the article about the fact that Amtrak will reward you uh, by if you sh- for they have something called share fares for groups. And uh, yes, Am- yes, Amtrak did recently launch this. Um, and it allows you to get discounted tickets for up to groups of four. So the more, if the kind of the more tickets you book, the better a deal you get. Up until four people, booking with seven people, it'll it'll kind of start over again. Right. But um, that's a, definitely a good a good resource for those looking to travel by train around the U.S. And I thought it was interesting that the points guy said, "Don't." Uh, transfer miles within the group because they could lose some of their value. Instead, let the members of your group with the most miles use those miles and then you could share the other expenses. I've found sometimes booking a group on airfares, sometimes the, the price goes up because, uh, so you gotta be careful about that. Sometimes it's, it's better, uh, to book as individuals. Once again, we have been speaking with Lauren Sloss. She has a terrific article in the New York Times called Traveling with a Group. Here's how to plan and stay friends. Thank you, Lauren. Thanks so much, Pauline.
Welcome back to the Travel Show. Up next, we have Robert Earl Howell, a contributor to the LA Times as well as many other publications. He has a really helpful article called Lost on the Hiking Trail Six Ways to Improve Your Chances of Getting Found. And, and Bob, we often hear uh, stories of hikers that get lost. I think there's this misperception today that you can no longer get lost because of our cell phones, but that's not true, is it? Uh, I, I think that you're absolutely right. There is a, a, a misperception. I think people feel if they've got their cell phone, they're going to be just fine. And the cell phone, don't get me wrong, is a very valuable tool when you're out on the trail, but you definitely don't want to rely on it. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's go through your six tips first. And the number one one seems very simple, but it's actually pretty complex. It's know where you're going. What do people need to do before they head off into the wilderness so they actually know where they're going? Yeah, I I think have a sense of, of where you're going to be. Actually look at a map. Actually take a hard copy map. I think that that is really important. Even if it's just kind of a, a trail sketch kind of map, mm-hmm. you at least know what trail intersects with what other trail, roughly know where you're going. But uh, one of the experts I interviewed for this story also stressed, go online, use the tools such as Google Earth or simply Google Maps to get the overall sense of where you're going. Where are the mountains? Where are the rivers? Where are the ridges? The more that that's imprinted in your brain, the more comfortable you're going to be and the more familiar you're going to be with the terrain when you actually get out there. Yeah, and you had one great piece of advice. A lot of hikes are in and out, so you're going to be going back the same way you came. Turn around every once in a while and look at and look at things and get a, a sense from that because it, it looks different when you're going in a different direction, right? So true. It, look, it can look completely different, which is one of the charms, of course, of, of hiking, even on an in-and-out trail. It's a different experience going back, but you want to sort of lock it into your brain, like, oh, yeah, this is this is where that giant oak tree is, so I'm on the right path. Right. And, and again, one of my experts there suggested, you know, take pictures, hmm. take pictures, turn around, take a snapshot, say, of a trail intersection. Yeah. And then you know when you get back to it what it looks like and where you're supposed to go. You also say it's important who you're hiking with. And we always hear never hike alone, but people do that all the time, right? Oh, I, I, I must say I do it all the time myself. So. <laughs> well, it's nice to get out into nature, and you might want to do that just in the quiet. It, it absolutely is. Um, it, it, it's ideal, of course, to hike with at least one other and and with a group. But if you do hike with a group, make sure that, the group stays together, mm-hmm. or if you split into subgroups, sometimes like on a Sierra Club hike, you, there may be a dozen people. If it splits into subgroups, make sure those subgroups stay together. Yeah. Because we, we illustrate in this story the instance of a man who was lost for nearly a week, and he was hiking with a group. Huh. But he, he fell back a little bit and took a wrong turn and ended up lost. And if you are hiking alone, you recommend putting your route map in your car, but doing it face down so nobody looking in the window can know that you're on a hike. Why is that, and and how will that work? Well, 
backing up a little bit, it's ideal, of course, to let somebody know sure. uh, exactly where you're going. So you might but call you, them first, yeah. But say it's an impromptu thing, or you haven't decided exactly where you're going yet. You get up into the mountains to a trailhead, and you know you decide, okay, this is the hike I'm going to take. Jot it down on a piece of paper and put it on your car seat. Eventually, if something goes wrong and you get lost, search and rescue is going to find your car and find that piece of paper. Right. You just don't want to put it face up because then that's a clue to robbers that <laughs> you're right. gone and they can break into your car. Exactly. We're speaking with Bob Howell. Uh, Robert Earl Howell is his pen name. And he wrote a terrific article for the LA Times called Lost on the Hiking Trail, Six Ways to Improve Your Chances of Getting Found. Okay, so let's cut forward to you are lost. You didn't do anything that Bob told you to do, what is the first thing you should do? Stop. Don't keep moving. You're going to make a bad situation worse. If you have the feeling like, "Uh uh-oh, I don't know where I am. I think I may have gone wrong. The experts advise, just sit down for a moment. Take a few sips of water. Have a snack. Collect your thoughts and reflect back to the last time you knew you were on the trail that you knew you were found, so to speak. And if at all possible, backtrack to that last familiar place, because chances is, chances are that's on a public trail and you're going to encounter other people mm-hmm. and then you're back in business. Right. But and you, you also recommend to call for help, even if you feel foolish doing so, right? You, you don't want to not call for help just out of uh, yeah, pride. Out of pride or concern about a, a helicopter rescue, the expense of that or something. Truth is, most public agencies cover the cost of rescue, but that should be the last thing on your mind. If you are truly lost, you could be in trouble. And, and you don't you want could, it to get dark. You want to get help before it gets dark. Chances, chances go way down of getting rescued when it's dark. Yeah. And then you also say be visible, which also has to do with being in the daylight, but also being out in the open, right? Yeah, def- definitely want to be visible. Uh, it's a good idea to wear bright clothing. It's a huge help to rescuers. And if dusk falls, if it's nighttime, by, by all means, have a headlamp or a flashlight. Yeah. Those are extremely visible to nighttime rescue uh well there's more there's more great advice in bob's article which once again is lost on the hiking trail six ways to improve your chances of getting found it's in the la times online and in the print paper thank you again bob my pleasure pauline arthur great to be with you listening to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Frommer here with my father, Arthur Frommer. And on the line, we have Karen Schwartz, who wrote a really interesting article for The New York Times called Everybody Hates the Key Card. Will your phone replace it? Welcome back to The Travel Show, Karen. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So you start this piece 
talking about a demonstration you did at a hotel where the manager was trying to use his cell phone and it didn't go as planned. What happened? Well, they are just installing it. This is a a chain in Portugal, which is a large chain by Portuguese standards, but, you know, certainly no Marriott or Hilton. Um, And they're just starting to install the uh, digital hotel keys there. And the manager was kind enough to offer to show me show it to me. And um, he had forgotten to turn the Bluetooth on on his phone. (laughs) Right. And so he had a a moment or two of embarrassment and then realized what happened and uh, fixed it and it worked. And, um, yeah, it was pretty seamless when it worked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing about key cards. They're becoming ubiquitous, right? How much how much have they grown in terms of the percentage of hotels worldwide that are using them? Or in the United the, States, I should say. The the mobile technology has been, it, it, it's absolutely exploding. The um, 75% of, of the Hilton hotels worldwide now have the mobile um, keys available. And um, Marriott expects to have it in all of its 7,000 properties by the end of 2020. Wow. So um, it's really taking off. You know, right now, Marriott only has it in, in 1,800, but, but it's really a priority for them to get these installed. But not everybody, the reason I had to have it demonstrated to me is because um, it's a lot of hotels are making it only available for loyalty members. Mm. And so while it's there, those locks can also take more traditional type card keys. So even though it's there, not all of us are seeing it. Right. I thought it was interesting that it's a, it's considered a perk for loyalty members. Why is that? Why is it a perk? I think that it's because they're trying to get people, they're trying to drive people to their app so that they're not only using the mobile keys, but they're doing the mobile check-in and the mobile checkout. And it's a, you're then a captive audience because then the hotels can send you marketing material. Sure. They can let you know what's happening in the hotel. You know, if there's a happy hour, they can make sure you get your invitation. It, it's a, it's a communication tool. Um, and loyalty people, you know, are, are more likely to to use those sorts of things. Sure. We're speaking with Karen Schwartz, who wrote a really fascinating article for the New York Times called Everybody Hates the Key Card. Will your phone replace it? Now, it doesn't work so well for groups, does it? Sharing a room. That, that was a really interesting part of, of, of the story, because there was a hotel chain that had advertised for a while that, Everybody in the room could get the mobile mobile key, and it was great for families. But when I spoke with Marriott and, and um, Hilton, they're limiting it to one per room. Hmm. And I think they're kind of moving slowly because they want to make sure the technology is safe. Um, and they don't want to have too many people with access to it from phones um, so that they can control how it's being downloaded, who's downloading it. And, and again, make sure that everybody has the app and is um, yeah. being, in communication with them. Well, that's that seems like the key issue. I mean, you <laughs> this this is your key. This is the key to your room. Is it safe? I mean, our 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 data is constantly being breached. It seems by various entities and and major corporations. We suddenly hear our personal info is is on the internet. How are they going to keep these keys on our phones safe? That's a very good question. So when we stop and we take a look at it, in reality, none of the keys that are out there are are 
you know, the, the, the old-fashioned keys that are metal can be duplicated. The card keys with the magnetic stripes can be duplicated. The ARFID cards can be duplicated. And this new mobile technology holds the promise of being more secure, but there was a, a Finnish hacking company um, that was able to get into some of the very, very early, one type of very, very early technology on this lock. But mm-hmm. it took them thousands of hours to do it. And they're benevolent hackers, so they then went to the company, Asa Abloy, and said, we found this vulnerability and worked with Asa Abloy to fix it. Hmm. And the hacker that I spoke with said that that is, as far as he's concerned right now, it is the most secure lock out there because he knows it was broken and he fixed it and now it's secure. Right. But he said there's no way for the rest of us to know which technology the hotels that we're staying at, even when they're using a mobile key, what technology they're using. Hmm. And... But he also was very reassuring in that he said, you know, for most of us, it doesn't really matter. He said, you know, you use common sense when you stay in a hotel room. You don't leave your valuables laying around. You make sure you use a chain when, you know, or, or the or the um, lock when you're in your room. Sure. And, you know, it's, you know, it, it's, people aren't out there trying to come in and steal our valuables and, and kidnap us. I mean, that's just not the way it works when we travel. Well, so some for are, most but of us, <laughs> for most of us, it, it, that isn't the problem. Well, you know, right. it, 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 it's a, it's an article that raises a lot of questions, gives a lot of answers. If anybody wants to look at it, it's called Everybody Hates the Key Card. Will your phone replace it on the New York Times? Thank you so much, Karen. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Pauline. Welcome back to The Travel Show. So we started out this hour talking about the fact that you can find interesting articles on travel on Fromers.com. Another one that we have up recently is one on how to find the right travel agent, which may sound like something that's old-fashioned, but actually more and more people are using agents. If you're a busy person, it can be a great convenience. Sometimes they have uh, relationships that can save you money. This this is particularly in the world of uh, true, in the world of cruising. Often you'll, you'll get really valuable uh, perks like upgrades or uh, a waving of gratuity or free a free meal in one of the restaurants. So how do you find a, a good travel agent? Well, we say the first thing you want to do is ask your friends. If you have a friend who has a good travel agent, that recommendation is worth its weight in gold. Often you will find really good people that way. But if you don't, then look around and make sure that you give travel agents a tough interview. You want to really make sure that they know what they're doing. And you want to find out, do they only recommend places where they are a member in some way? Or do they give broader advice than that? Uh, some cruise agents will only work with certain cruise lines. So you go to them thinking, oh, I want to take a princess cruise, but you only hear about Carnival because your agent, unbeknownst to you, doesn't work with principal, uh, with a princess so you want to find out 
what kind of agent they are, how broad their connections are, how deep their knowledge is of the travel agents. Uh, and then see if they're a member, member of ASTA. That is the American Society of Travel Agents. It's a premier industry organization, and it usually says something good about that travel agent. Now, if you are looking for real high-end travel and you want a travel agent for that, the best resource I know is a website called wendyperrin.com. Wendy, P-E-R-R-I-N.com. Wendy was a journalist for many years uh, with, uh, I think it was Condé Nast Traveler. She started this site, and one section of it is for vetted travel agents who have different specialties. So say you're going to France, you want a luxury tour there, Wendy's site will find you vetted travel agents who only deal with travel to France or only deal with African safaris or only deal with travel to Japan. Um, she keeps her her listings up to date. If she gets complaints about an agent, they're gone. Uh, but for the most part, people are very um, pleased with what she does. And because she has this journalistic background, she really does the research needed on these agents. So you'll find that on Fromers.com. We hope you'll visit us there. And to those who are traveling, may we wish you a hearty bon voyage. Bon voyage.